Support for this podcast comes from Schneider Electric, empowering all to make the most use of their energy resources, ensuring that life is on everywhere for everyone. Whether you're looking to strengthen your business against severe weather or natural disasters or increase sustainability, Schneider Electric is your partner to add microgrids to energy infrastructure. Learn more at www.schneider-electric.com microgrid or just follow the link in the show notes. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. This week, the state of demand response. There are still questions about what exactly caused California's blackouts during last month's heat wave. We know that imports were down, natural gas plants tripped offline, and wind generation fell. But what about all those air conditioners, batteries, and industrial loads that are supposed to support the grid? What role did they play, or didn't they play, in helping California's stressed electric grid? We're going to look at how distributed resources are being used today in different grids, including California, around the U.S., and Shale Khan is here with me. He's my co-host and managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Shale, hello. Hello, Stephen. It was chaos there in California when we last spoke. How, how are things now? I would say slightly less chaotic, though things are definitely not back to normal. We still, you know, at least where I live in the East Bay, in the Bay Area, we've been oscillating between what feels like pretty good air quality and then really bad air quality is really bad again today. From what I've been reading, you know, the fires are are pretty well contained at this point. We're not seeing new evacuations or anything like that, but the fires themselves are still burning. And depending on the prevailing winds and the weather that is coming over the next couple of weeks, we, we may be in for relatively bad air quality for weeks to come. Also worth noting, this is the front end of the wildfire season. So, I mean, God forbid we could have another whole cycle of this in the next couple of months. Before I go over to you, Elta, I want to check. Do you have like any AC units running near you? I just want to make sure. Oh, no. I pre-cooled. I pre-cooled. Like any good <laughs> DER-focused <laughs> analyst. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I turned it down to, you know, like a 67 for about an hour before this. So I'm good. With us this week is Dr. Elta Colo. Uh, she's a content lead on the Grid Edge team at Wood McKenzie. She's an expert on utility business models, grid integration, and electricity market design. And that also includes today's topic, demand response. Hey, Elta. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Shale. Thanks for having me on today. Definitely. Now, I want to remind our listeners who haven't heard you on the show, you were on the show a couple years back, but uh, you are literally a doctor in demand response. You got your PhD studying this topic. Yes, I did in European markets. So it's really interesting for me the last few years to be covering U.S. markets and having the ability to compare and contrast a little bit. Do you shorten your title to Dr. Dr. Dr.? <laughs> uh, you know, I should, right? You probably should, yeah. So there's a lot of talk about demand response right now coming out of California's blackouts. And we decided it would be a good time to bring Elta on for an update on where things stand. Uh, Shale, before we go over to Elta, what is on your mind as we explore this topic? Well, I think we've talked about before, there's been, I think, an evolution over the past decade or so from, you know, the early days of this current wave of demand response, which was really predominantly large commercial industrial loads being set up to shed load at times of 
particular stress on the grid um, to a much more sort of evolved and complex market today with lots of different kinds of resources, both commercial and residential, um, providing value to the grid on a daily basis, not just when the grid is super stressed. So there's been this fun evolution of that market. However, what happened in California two weeks ago was pretty close to the original intent of demand response, which is the relatively rare occasion when you have really high load and for some reason or another, not enough generation. That's exactly the moment when demand response is supposed to step in and solve problems. And so in the wake of the blackouts that we saw in California, there's been a lot of finger pointing. You alluded to some of the reasons behind what happened, but there's also been a bunch of hand-wringing from the folks in the demand response community around like market rules and regulations and things that have stopped demand response from providing even more value. So I'm personally interested to dig into all of that and just understand like, what is the state of these resources on the customer side of the meter that are supposed to be providing value when something like this happens? Um, how much of them are there and are they able to actually be utilized in the way that they could be? Could we have avoided these blackouts? in another set of circumstances. Right. So first of all, I think it's a big claim to say that we could have avoided the blackouts, right? I think we should take a survey of the resources that are there today um, and see how we can better integrate them into operations. So that's number one. So let's unpack this a little bit more. What is it that we have that could have been used, right? So we know that we have around 2.2 gigawatts of behind the meter resources. Right, so that's around 1.5 gigawatts of demand response, which is the majority of it. We have around 450 megawatts of behind the meter storage, so that's both residential and CNI. Uh, we should have the availability of around 100 megawatts of EV charging flexibility and uh, around 160 megawatts of natural gas and diesel microgrids. So, just to clarify for folks, then, to make sure everybody understands terminology, so the vast majority of that is demand response. And when you're saying demand response in this context, you mean load shedding from either a commercial or industrial customer. Exactly. Load shedding. Think your kind of more traditional um, capability, right? Think the direct load control switches. Although we would like to think that there's more automated demand response in our systems today, but that's not the reality. Got it. Okay. So lots of that type of load shedding and then uh, significant but lesser amount of various other things like behind-the-meter batteries and microgrids and EV chargers. Exactly. And, you know, when we talk about being able to respond to, say, the immediate um, shed and capacity that we had from a natural gas plant, which was essentially kind of a 12-minute instance, right, where you really needed to drop load that fast, uh, my colleague, Isaac Mays-Rostein, actually took a survey of the demand response programs of the utilities. And out of that 1.5 gigawatts of demand response that I mentioned, actually only 200 or so megawatts of that capacity is able to be available within less than 15 minutes. And is that a technical limitation? Like what is stopping those resources from being available in less than 15 minutes? It's just what they've stated they're able to do. So it's a couple of things. It's the program design, right? So this is essentially what they've enrolled into. That's a number one thing. So the way that these programs are designed is for the availability to be called on, you know, a more than 30-minute time frame versus that close to automated capability of less than 15 minutes. It doesn't mean that you can't get the controls in place to have 
the automated response, but the way that the California investor-owned utilities have designed the majority of their programs right now is really uh, around that 30 or so minute uh, response time. How much was the unexpected generation loss or capacity loss from the natural gas plants that tripped offline? Uh, There was one that was uh, 400 megawatts, I believe, right? Uh, And then immediately after that, you had a 470 or so um, megawatt load shed from what I understand. Got it. So a little under a gigawatt in total of unexpected loss. I'm just putting that in the context of what you were just saying about all these demand side resources where you're saying in total, there's about 2.2 gigawatts of that stuff available in California. Definitely. And, And in theory, we should have been able to call in all of it. But I think there's kind of some nuances to this, right? So you have to think about what's available to be dispatched all at once, right? Because if we talk about having 1.5 gigawatts that's there, what is it that's available all at once? And also location. Uh, The ISO, the California Independent System Operator, did say that they had major congestion issues because of where load was concentrated as well. So I think location does play a role in this. So how much of that 2.2 gigawatts ultimately was utilized for the benefit of the grid? over the course of that two-day cycle where we had the blackouts in California? In theory, all of it was utilized across the two days. But that doesn't mean that you had it all available um, in one uh, you know, 15-minute, 30-minute, one-hour time window. I think that's the thing to keep in mind. We do know that the utilities have all said that they have utilized all the demand-side resources at their disposal, and there is no doubt that all of these resources were utilized. But I think the key point here is that they weren't available all at once. And um, that's a big difference, I think, in the capabilities of these resources and aggregation. And is that a problem? I mean, is that a, a feature of the system or a bug in the system? I mean, in theory, should it just be able to be di- dispatched all at once? If you're talking about events like this, yes, you need to know exactly, you know, what your resource capability is in uh, the instance of an emergency, right? The CAISO has two types of demand response programs, essentially, that you can participate in. So the emergency program, in theory, has, as of, you know, the 2019 reporting, 1,500 megawatts enrolled in that, right? But does that mean you can call on that all at once? And this is essentially price-triggered by the California Independent System Operator at $1,000 per megawatt hour, right? So in theory, you should have that available. Can you call it all at once? That's another story. And let me just add one more point here, is that when kind of looking at the 2019 reporting from the California System Operator, um, they actually said that resources weren't performing. So they registered high ramp rates and short start times for demand response resources. And what they got back was low response rates uh, with respect to real-time dispatches. So you're saying, you know, I think what you're saying, the vendor says that we can do this, but actually kind of the performance isn't showing that, at least as of kind of the 2019 events. Uh, That seems like a serious problem. What are the vendors saying about that? <laughs> uh, I mean, so there, I'm hearing two things, right? Like uh, the vendors are saying, hey, we don't have the proper market signals in place for us to be 
able to dispatch correctly. And then I'm hearing others criticize the California system operate California independent system operator saying, well, Kaiso didn't believe in these resources, right? Like, so what is it? Is it that the utilities in Kaiso like don't fully believe that they have the capacity in place? Or is it that the vendors aren't giving them what they need? I mean, they are working with, they're not running these programs on their own, right? That's a thing to keep in mind. These are all, most of these programs are managed, um, you know, by your traditional C-Powers and Alexas of the world, um, and also, you know, some of the more niche players on the residential side. Uh, but the thing is, um, they're asked to essentially bring in resources around a certain set of programs that have been designed in a certain way by the utilities and to fit into kind of the Kaiso needs. Now, you have to also think that you don't have a generation shortage um, in theory, right, in, in California. I think you saw a generation shortage because of the interconnection um, ca- capacity availability. And I think that's that's our hurdle for the future, right, because if we kind of continue with these types of heat waves. Uh, but I think that's that's a big thing. This is one major reason why utilities across the U.S., not just in California, have not invested more heavily in integrating their demand response programs more into operations because you've always had that buffer of your capacity availability. All right. So here's my attempted understanding of the sort of takeaways about how demand response performed in California during this time of particular stress. The behind the meter resources, which are comprised of a bunch of you know, old school CNI load shedding plus a bunch of lesser amount of new stuff, EV chargers, behind the meter batteries, thermostats, et cetera, um, did perform, did shed load, did provide demand response capacity at the times when they were called upon when the grid needed them. However, uh, there's a theoretical possibility that they could have provided more and in order to have done so, there would have need to have been some mix of market rule changes that, for example, would have you know forced them to become available on 15 minutes notice, and or the resources themselves would have needed to be able to perform better and ramp faster. So it's there's some sort of, I don't want to call it blame, but some responsibility on both sides as to why the resources did perform but didn't like maximize their potential. Does that feel right to you, Alta? I agree. I think the potential was definitely not maximized. I do think that they these resources did play a significant role uh, in essentially keeping the lights on for longer during the August 14th and 15th events, right? And then I think one of the things we didn't touch on that I do want to touch on is the flex alerts, right? The behavioral demand response that came to the rescue, so the fact that, you know, folks are saying, you know, around four gigawatts of that was able to be tapped into. So I think it shows you kind of significant potential there. Which is pretty remarkable to me because the flex alerts are basically just telling customers, hey, can you conserve energy? Uh, can you turn your AC down? Can you shut off your lights, reduce your load? And it's just a very standard set of alerts. It is demand response 1.0. And it turns out that just like messaging to people actually works. It's actually like demand response 0.0, right? Right. It's before even demand response. And the thing about that that's so it's it's so delightful in some ways is that it's a classic tragedy of the commons type of situation. Like I myself 
you know, want to run my air conditioner and be comfortable in my house. I have no incentive to turn down my air conditioner at times of grid stress, except for the PG&E is telling me it's going to be bad for everyone. It's my single air conditioner is unlikely to trip the grid offline. And yet if four gigawatts of load was shed as a result of that, it's an indication that a lot of people were willing to do something that was maybe minorly uncomfortable for themselves for the better good of the grid. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, let's talk about this actually being a business model that um, has penciled out for Baltimore Gas and Electric working with O-Power for years and even getting capacity credit in PJM, right? So there is a way to monetize this longer term. I'm not sure that you can get four gigawatts um, in the long term if you do try to make this a more formal program. But it does show you um, kind of the, the ability for customers to get engaged. And I do think that this summer especially is a summer where y- utilities have this unique capability to engage their customers, right? Um, and I think we forget that because we are all so hyper aware of our electricity usage being at home. I want to round this California conversation out, but since we're talking about bread and butter demand response, I want to finish up with a look at the flashy resources that are out there, such as Tesla's and Sunrun solar plus storage systems and, um, you know, all these assets that we talk about as potentially benefiting the grid. So what do we know about what, say, Sunrun, who is deploying batteries and solar in California, or Tesla, which has power walls and a lot of uh, cars charging in people's homes around California? What do we know about what they provided? So they sent out messages to their customers uh, adjusting charging and discharging patterns, right? So we don't know kind of the full extent of what they were able to do, uh, but they definitely adjusted um, customer usage patterns as well. So it'll be really interesting to see once they come out with that data. What I'm really interested in seeing is actually the grid services program pilot that Sunrun is running with Southern California Edison and kind of the results from that because they announced that is up and running earlier this year. And even though it's 300 homes, I think during an event like this, uh, seeing the results that uh, they were able to bring to bear will be really interesting. The other irony of the resources that participated in California during this period was that the governor, Governor Newsom, issued an emergency authorization to let a bunch of these backup diesel generators that had been installed to deal with the proactive power shutoffs that we are seeing in California because of PG&E caused wildfires to uh, feed power into the grid, which they are never supposed to do otherwise because they are diesel and California hates new diesel. But on that day, they got an emergency authorization to let that stuff uh, power the grid. So it's this weird circular irony of climate change causing all these problems in the first place, resulting in new diesel generation, which of course contributes to climate change. It's, it's not a great cycle. That was like 950 megawatts of capacity, apparently. So that's a lot. <laughs> is that right? We have 950 megawatts. This is all diesel generation that... that Diesel and at gas. I mean, that's kind of the assumptions we're running with right now. So, um, and the thing is, like, once you kind of uh, saw 
the impacts of, uh, you know, the the fact that you did need demand-side resources. Like, with, within um, a couple of days, you were able to get 180 megawatts of more capacity from data centers. So that, that was like 100 megawatts or so that they were able to squeeze out. More backup generators from demand response because as of 2019, backup gens could not participate in demand response, but they were allowed to during that week. Um, and also engaging more microgrid capacity from the U.S. Navy. So, you know, when you need these resources, you can squeeze them out. It's just knowing where they are and who's controlling them. A reminder that we're still in the first innings of this transformation. Well, coming up, I want to talk a little bit more about the market broadly beyond California. First, a quick word about our supporter of the show. We're brought to you by Schneider Electric. Schneider is the leader in the digital transformation in energy management and automation with a focus on microgrids. We live in a new energy landscape that, as we're hearing, is changing and will hopefully accelerate. And it is starting to disrupt the power ecosystem. And the three Ds, decarbonization, decentralization, and digitization are guiding that transformation. Schneider Electric has designed and deployed more than 300 microgrids in North America, which can help customers gain energy independence and control while also increasing resilience on the grid and reaching clean energy goals. If you want to learn more about microgrids and Schneider Electric's work on this front, go to schneider-electric.com slash microgrid, or just follow the link in the show notes. All right, so let's move beyond the state that is near and dear to my heart of California and just talk about demand response overall. It's been a while since we've checked in on this market, and I'm curious at the high level, Elta, um, how much demand response is there these days in the United States, and how has that been trending? Is the market growing overall? Has it been flat? Um, what are we seeing? So over the years, I you know, I hate to burst on bubbles here for some folks, but demand responses remain pretty steady. Um, so in the whole U.S. power system, we have around 50 gigawatts of demand response. That's overlapping with regulated utility programs and in ISO and RTO territories. What you have sitting just with utilities is around 35 gigawatts. So that's where we're at. And you know, the majority of that is still commercial and industrial demand response. Right. So I just want to break that down for one second. So 50 gigawatts of resources overall on the customer side of the meter that are participating somehow as demand response assets, of which 35 gigawatts, the majority, is a utility-led program that, you know, says we are going to ask predominantly commercial industrial customers to shed load at times of grid stress. Only 15 gigawatts then of that is the sort of market participation type of stuff that we've been talking about with California. Uh, no, actually. So um, it's around 30 gigawatts what you have in market participation programs that's registered, not used, right? So that's a caveat right there. So wait, is there overlap then? You said 35 yeah. gigawatts in utility programs. Yeah. So 30 gigawatts in markets and some of that overlaps. Yeah, so there's overlap. Um, so utilities that sit in ISO and RTO territories, the majority of those programs are monetized in the ISO and RTO markets. Okay, so you mentioned that that most of it is still, I guess what you might call the old school commercial industrial manual load shedding. Um, but the the promise, I think the excitement around, you know, 
distributed energy resource participation in wholesale markets or participation in, in demand response programs has been this, you know, around the new wave of resources that are coming, be they residential thermostats or EV chargers or behind the meter batteries or whatever. How, how much of that has penetrated the market at this point? I think where we see the most diversity is in residential programs, right? So this is where you see um, a wider range of resources. So you're seeing smart thermostats, you're seeing grid interactive water heaters, you're seeing pool pumps. Um, So that's where you're seeing more variety uh, in terms of what's available. But still, the majority of what we're seeing out there for residential is still HVAC control. Not all of it is smart thermostats, right? So we still have kind of a good chunk of the market dominated by your direct load control switches that, you know, you have to think about these investments being made by utilities thinking that it was, they had a 20 year life cycle. Now, what a lot of utilities have actually pointed out in their regulatory filings, and my colleague Fei Wang surveyed this in our regulated utility report last year, essentially saying that these switches are not performing. So, That was a very interesting insight that essentially utilities don't have the confidence um, in the demand response resource because essentially the signal may not be getting to these switches. Um, Also, from like a customer engagement perspective, when you're talking about uh, programs that are still fundamentally switch-based, customers don't have the opportunity to opt out, which um, is a problem because you want to give residential customers at least the flexibility to do that. This is like completely mind-boggling to me. I mean, think how long <laughs> we've been talking about resources at the grid edge and about demand response 2.0. And still, the vast majority of CNI demand response and residential demand response is just like control switches and or yeah. the equivalent of picking up the red telephone and saying, hey, can you turn down some demand? We've got some stresses on the grid. I mean, I, I just, I'm flabbergasted by that. And should we be? I mean, I guess, like, is this a surprise to you as much as it is to me? I think it's humbling. The kind of positive here is that you do have this vast resource engaged and you have a customer base that is engaged, right? So utilities have spent, you know, decades kind of building up this resource. So I think now is where you have an opportunity to turn it more dynamic um, and, to be able to essentially use it as part of operation. So one of the things to keep in mind here is that the majority of demand response uh, is actually not integrated into utility operations. So, you know, we've talked about this wonderful world of distributed energy resource management systems, uh, but the reality is that, you know, demand response has actually been sitting in a separate siloed group within a utility. It is now that we're starting to see more integration of these resources. And and this is essentially, you know, where you're seeing these five, 10 megawatt programs pop up, where you're seeing the battery storage, the EV programs that are starting to get integrated into operations, but not with the full demand response portfolio. Uh, We're slowly starting to get there, but um, that's not the reality today. I'll try to put a a slightly more positive spin on this, I think, which is, you know, I do think there's a this is just the reality of like time scales in the energy sector are that they're they're longer than in many other places. And so though we have been talking about, you know, DERs participating in wholesale markets for a long time, um, there are a couple of challenges. One is the market rules did have to get rewritten in some places. Programs had to be redesigned, like, you know, everything had to change in order for that to happen. And I think that is starting to happen, but it is it takes it takes a fairly long time to penetrate. 
And the second is that the resources had to show up, right? For all the excitement about, for example, behind the meter batteries uh, five years ago, there just weren't enough of them for them to be a meaningful share of anything at the grid scale. And so we're you know, now getting to the point where we may have that with thermostats and batteries are starting to get there. EV chargers are behind that. And at some point they're going to get there. You know, we weren't using like pool pump load before and folks are starting to make pool pumps smarter. So, you know, all this stuff I feel like is coming. And so it's a, to me, it's still a wave that is building. Perhaps it's building slower than you might've thought five years ago, but the promise is there. And even just back to the California point that Elta made, which is of those 2.2 gigawatts of demand response capacity in California, you know, what a gigawatt or so of that came from something outside the traditional demand response resources. So you add all that up and it's like, it's not nothing. Um, It's just taking a while to become really big. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I would like to kind of point to the example of PJM, right? So after they had the 2014 Polar Vortex events where demand response really performed uh, for the system, they actually you know, went through a process of looking at their market design. And they essentially said that we need capacity resources with, you know, um, a 365, 24-7 availability, which essentially, uh, you know, did knock out uh, demand response from the capacity mechanism, you know, a couple of gigawatts of that. But it came back. Uh, and essentially finding innovative pairings of resources to be able to have that full year-round capability, right, within a specific load zone. So uh, I do think that if you do put the rules in place, um, the resources will come. So let's branch out even further and talk about the European market. You know, your PhD focused on demand response in Europe. So how different is the European market from the U.S. market in terms of the way that demand response resources are dispatched and the kind of resources that are out there? Right. So I think like you have to fundamentally look at the deregulation of the European market, right, where you have decoupling of generation, transmission, distribution and retail. Um, So that's a a fundamental difference in the market design. Uh, So you essentially kind of have this Jen Taylor model where the retailers are the ones kind of bringing demand response to market. Now, one of the big battles that Europeans have been fighting for a long time is actually having distribution system operators provide demand response. And this is something that they're coming to hopefully an end in the in the coming years. But it's been a 10-year battle at the European Commission. Um, and I think that once you're kind of able to, in some way, unlock that local market, you can really get to that layered uh, value stream that we keep talking about. So if deregulated markets are an important driver of demand response in Europe, what about the role of deregulation and competitive power providers in the demand response market here in the U.S.? Right. So you have to think that um, these retail providers, right, are all actually licensing uh, distributed energy resource management system type software, whether it's just for your basic demand response or more advanced applications, including energy storage. So I think where you have an opportunity here is that you can engage a customer base essentially um, at an accelerated pace and have the distribution grid services piece be an added value stream. 
So I really think that in territories where you have a deregulated market are able to bring that retail piece, uh, grid services being a portion of that, in addition to wholesale market services, I really think that's a winning model. You're still going to see the integration into operations for distribution utilities. But again, as Shale pointed out, it takes a very long time to do that. So if we're going to kind of accelerate this, um, this is actually where I would like to see the innovation. And we have seen this play out in Europe. We have seen this play out in Australia. I think one of the most publicized projects out there in Australia is what Ambala is doing with AGL, the retailer, where they are essentially taking that distribution grid value stream and the wholesale market value stream and making the economics pan out for the customers buying storage systems without incentives. There's another piece that I want to touch on, which is electricity consumption shifts during the pandemic. So we saw a drop in commercial loads, uh, loads in office buildings, and that has shifted into the residential sector. Um, During this summer of the pandemic, have we seen demand response shifted in the way it's used because of the way loads are shifting during the pandemic? So I'd like to point to New York here for a bit. You've seen demand response dispatch for distribution grid relief in the outer boroughs, um, kind of at record numbers. Um, And that's because essentially operators just did not have a good way, I would say, of forecasting the impact on their system. Um, Because I think one of the things that was highlighted early on in the pandemic is how do we model demand, right? Because we haven't had um, these types of shifts in load in various pockets before. Um, And I think this summer being record heat waves, right? You had some of the hottest days on record in New York over the June and July periods, and you did end up dispatching demand response for distribution grid relief. So was residential demand response used more than expected this summer? Absolutely. And also for feeder-specific relief. So still kind of waiting for some of that assessment to come out. Uh, But that has been the case. And one of the things when talking to the vendor community that services the residential demand response space is really utilities asking them, when calling events uh, to essentially adhere to the customer specifications very tightly so that they don't have customer attrition because they anticipated more need to use um, the resource throughout the summer. So I think that's really interesting where you really kind of see that technology piece play a key role in kind of keeping the customers engaged while still servicing the grid. And uh, another thing that I actually want to point out here, I did mention earlier, you know, the customer engagement piece, right? And I think Consumers Energy is a really good example of this, where they actually got uh, demand response program enrollment started during the summer, working with Uplight and Nest, getting tens of thousands of customers to get enrolled in programs and get free Nest thermostats. Um, So because one of the things to keep in mind is once you're getting a new program started, up to kind of 50% of that first year's costs end up being marketing. So I think, you know, the fact that customers are so engaged with their electricity usage was actually really helpful in kickstarting this program, not just for the demand response for electricity, but also they, they also allowed for these customers to enroll for gas demand response for the winter. All right. So let's look to the future for a moment. Um, you know, fast forward five years, 10 years, something like that. 
it, what do you think the the universe of demand response looks like in North America then and how if at all will it be different from today oh i this is a fantastic question right i really think this will be the era of kind of the distributed utilities that are popping up. We talked about having all of these resources and having more intelligent orchestration and engagement, right? So I think the likes of an LX centrical business solutions that are popping up uh, and all of these distributed practices that are essentially asset light customer focused, um, I really think would bring some interesting business models to market with demand response and the orchestration of resources behind the meter as kind of a critical piece to success. We have a lot of listeners who are not in the demand response business or probably don't follow demand response closely. And I think you could have a couple different interpretations of this conversation given the limitations of demand response, but given that there's a lot good happening out in the market. So how should we characterize demand response today? I'll give my take on this. I do think that, you know, we should keep in mind that we have significant resources engaged that can do more, right? And I do think a critical piece in these resources doing more is orchestration software. And that's really kind of on the utilities um, to essentially uh, take that up. Right. Um, and not just, you know, what we've seen across the California utilities is um, several DERMS type deployments, right, uh, for demonstration and pilot type projects, but actually seeing full integrations into operations. And this is where you can get the most value out of an engaged customer base. And also, you know, the resources that will be coming online after this, right? There will be more storage, there will be more EVs, and essentially that may also require grid upgrades, but also knowing what the hosting capacity is on your grid and, and having kind of that intelligence piece on the back end will kind of help utilities get the most out of these resources at the lowest cost. And it sounds like we shouldn't be thinking about demand response in isolation anymore. We should be thinking about it as this bigger portfolio of distributed energy resources. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I don't like to break out demand response from the broader distributed energy resource space. We tend to do that because of program design. But we should really be thinking about demand response as a piece of the distributed energy resource landscape, a large piece that has been engaged for a long time. But now it's time to think about orchestration and optimization of these resources. Shale, there's just one missing link. What's that? Blockchain. <laughs> God. Peer-to-peer, <laughs> <laughs> decentralized, trustless energy networks. <laughs> Elta Colo, Dr. Elta Colo is a content lead for Wood McKenzie, and she is focused on grid transformation, utility business models, Grid integration of distributed resources, and she joined us from Jersey City. Thanks, Elta. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Shale. Shale Khan is my co-host. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. I'm Stephen Lacey. The Interchange is a collaboration between Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. And uh, if you want to suggest some story ideas, please hit us up on Twitter. Uh, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Super helpful. And we will catch you next week. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media.